thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. I was the CEO at Top Gun when we had F-16Ns, a really fast airplane. When they met a Hornet and a guy decided he was going to try to leave in an F-18 with single center line, you're in trouble. They'd have 240 overtake, so you had to turn and fight. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, and joining me in studio today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Tom Trotter. Trotz, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Great to be here. Jello. <laughs> Great to have you. Let's see. Our first foray into video was episode 155 with Bones. And then lo and behold, I have a chat from him and some number I didn't recognize, which was you. So apparently you two guys know each other and here you are. We know each other. All right. Well, maybe we should get to that later. But everyone seemed to enjoy the Bones episode and he's kind enough to supply us with this studio at his FBO at Gillespie Field. And He's not bad for an Air Force guy. Yeah. That's right. Well, I am really looking forward to this discussion today because I think we can talk about the F-14, we can talk about the Hornet, we can talk about Top Gun, we can talk about being an Air Wing commander and whatever else comes to mind. So uh, these are all experiences you've had, yeah? All right, well, let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What'd you do in the Navy? And if you want to talk about what you're doing now a little bit, that's fine too. Let's start with Pueblo, Colorado. Pueblo, Colorado is kind of in the prairies. It's not up in the mountains where the ski areas. But close. It's close. It's got a very nice climate, but it's a long ways from the mountains. So I grew up in Pueblo. Two things happened in Pueblo that were motivators. There was one called the CF&I. It was the second largest steel mill in the entire nation, owned by the Rockefellers at one time. And the other thing that happened there that always was fascinating to me was we had no computers, no simulators, united, trained in Pueblo. So they did a GCA box pattern around the airfield with 707s, 727s, DC-8s, all day and all night. And the city of Pueblo would get a few bucks for every time they touched down. So I knew that I probably didn't want to become a steel worker. And I love flying. I would tell my dad, I need to go out there and watch the airplanes. So I grew up in Pueblo, went to high school. We are lower middle income, kind of. And my parents said to me real early on, you got two choices. You're either going to learn a trade out of high school or you're going to get a scholarship and you're going to the military. So my brother was three years ahead of me. He ends up getting appointed in the Naval Academy. He was a really smart guy, submariner, nuclear power. Me, I was probably chasing girls a little bit too much, skiing a lot, having fun. I want to go to the Naval Academy the worst way. The Naval Academy looked at my SATs and they go, no way. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then all of a sudden I was an alternate to the University of Colorado ROTC. I said, what's that? My brother had these little Polaroid pictures of airplanes. And I go, the Navy owns airplanes? The Air Force Academy was close by in Colorado Springs. I, said, I thought there was only guys with airplanes. No, they got these airplanes. I got to fly in a, this little jet called the TA-4. Oh, man, I got to do that. 
So lo and behold, I made it off of the alternate list and became a choice for the University of Colorado. So four years at the University of Colorado, ROTC, boom, come out of there. A month later, I'm in flight school. No sitting around and waiting. They go, hey, orders, graduate in May, jump into flight school. One year later, I've got my wings. Now I get finished with flight school, did okay. And they go, what do you want to fly and which coast? So I go, I want the Tomcat. I had a poster. And we all envy the Tomcat. So number one guy got his choice. I was fortunate enough, and I'll tell you why. Because I was very average. I barely got out of T2s. But I had an instructor that was a fighter pilot, Eric Vander Cleaver, something like that. So this dude was Vietnam fighter pilot, taught me everything. He was amazing, exactly what to do in the A4. I was just, he goes, we're going to kick ass. You're going to be better than all these other guys, no problem. I'm going to show you exactly what to do on approaches, this and that. You know, I was right at the top of my class the whole way through. I was very fortunate. I credit him. I got Tomcats, went to the East Coast because that's where my wife was from, Virginia Beach. So I said, off we go to Virginia Beach. Doesn't matter to me. I like the airplane. Did a fleet tour. As I showed up my first squadron as an ensign in the F-14, which is, and then about three or four months later, I became a JG. And of course, uh, then you get assigned a senior guy. Then I'm in Tomcats for a tour. Iranian hostage thing happens. We get there a little late. Nimitz is involved. We're kind of involved, but not really on Eisenhower. After that, I get assigned to the FRS. So now I'm an instructor in Tomcats. There was an opportunity to go into F-18s. I raised my hand as an LSO, landing signal officer and fighter guy. So they seated the first two squadrons. And I'll give a plug for Tony Kiggins. Sarge came from the West Coast. Myself, I came from the East Coast. So they put us into the first two Hornet squadrons, VFA-113 and VFA-25. They were all A-7 guys, marched across the street, boom, started getting our training. Went through that as lieutenant. So I was in the first Hornet squadron, first deployment of the F-18. So that was great. Went on to do my department head tour of VFA-25, highly successful squadron, probably the best squadron I was ever in as a department head. Got command of an F-18 squadron, the VFA-151 Vigilantes, was fortunate enough with a follow-on tour to Top Gun, which we're going to discuss a bit, at Miramar, 94 to 96. I was the 20th commanding officer Top Gun and the last guy at Miramar. I went up to Fallon, put the shovel in the ground, turned over the dirt for the hangar, off they went. That's where you resided. Dog Thompson took over from me later on and moved Top Gun up there. I followed that with a uh, skiing tour at U.S. Space Command NORAD in Colorado Springs. <laughs> I was wondering about Check that. Check in the block. Now. Okay. So I'm purple and very eligible for Major Command. Never did a tour in the Pentagon. Got a carrier air wing at Lemoore when they had moved all the CAGs up from San Diego. So I was at Deputy and then CAG at Lemoore of CAG 2. So we were on Constellation. I started out on a new carrier. I did nothing but go backwards with old carriers. Now, the beauty of that was you get to go into port, fossil fuel. So my other little claim to fame, if there is one, I have more landings on Connie than anybody, probably almost 800. Wow. So On one ship? One ship. Wow. I did four tours on the same boat. Love Connie. Then I retired in 2000, jumped over the civil side. It was actually a Top Gun connection that I got another naval aviator, a guy named Shifty Pierce. He got a job as a chief pilot. He kind of held a position for me for a few years later, and then I went in, and I was uh, with him on a Learjet. We traveled the world, had a lot of fun for about five years. 
And I've kind of been in and out of what you'd call the GA side, business GA side of private jets. I always call it sometimes you're serving the rich and not very famous, and sometimes it's the rich and famous and support that lifestyle, which is very good. So I've been kind of doing that since. So I've been flying since I was 19 years old. Jello, that's almost 50 years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so, how, uh, how many hours in all that time? Oh, I hate to say it. Uh, I, well, this is what I'm proud of. 5,000 in the Navy, 5,000 plus, 1,278 carrier landings. Wow. Total, about 17,000, couple hundred airplanes. I flew some helicopters, too. I flew the H-60, which I was very proud of, that uh, I got called. You know, I did my small deck landing, always with another lieutenant. This t- brings me to say, I had three goals in the Navy, lofty goals. I wanted to be an O3, okay? <laughs> That's a lieutenant. Because lieutenants are cool, <laughs> yeah, okay? Yeah. I needed one of those belt buckles that all the Vietnam guys had from the Philippines. So they'd take a bomb, they cut it up, they hammer out your wings, and then you can put whatever you want on it. Mine said, FNA, we bad. So, <laughs> and then your, so you then your name like is on your khakis or something? Yeah, it's a khaki belt yeah, yeah. buckle they yeah. sold in the Philippines. I go, okay, I need to be a lieutenant, that, yeah. and in a fighter squadron. And I achieved all that. Check. So there you go. But still stuck around 20 some odd years and yeah, all those I did. hours. And big choice at about 10 years that most guys face. And uh, I had a four year commitment. I was done real early on. Really? Yeah, that was it. Well, you don't seem to be uh, shy of a microphone or a camera, so you must have some experience doing this kind of thing too, yeah? Didn't you tell me before? A couple times. Yeah, so aren't you on the news once in a while? And I think Gucci had Fox News got my, uh, even the Chinese got my phone number somehow. It was a weird one about COVID. So Uh, that was an aside, but I was on Fox twice. One was for why can't we put a no-fly zone up over the Ukraine? I actually had an F-22 guy that agreed with my whole philosophical approach to it. So I thought that was good. The other one was on Top Gun 2 oh. with Stuart Varney. So Stuart and I did both of those. And what about Gucci? You were on his show. I'd need to get smart on that show. I'm not really Yeah, familiar. Gucci's got a great show. He's got a podcast. But he is in the speaker's world, big speak. Gucci's a superstar. The guy knocks it out of Former the Former Blue Angel. Former Blue Angel lead solo. And then uh, a guy that, you know, I knew from Lemoore, Navy F-18 guy from Lemoore, and went to Stanford, got his business degree, but he's really great. His podcast is wonderful. He does a super job if anybody, he'll bring in 3,000 people to come to see him. Major League Baseball, NASCAR, you name it, the PGA. Everybody wants to hear Gucci's approach to leadership and the dynamics of teamwork. Well, we will have to find your episode. We can link to it because I believe in uh, sharing the wealth as far as if he's got good stuff with you. And you need to be on his podcast. Well, I can't. You can talk to him. I can set him, that up. Yeah, I'll right. call Gucci. Have Don't worry. people talk to his yeah, people. my guys talk to your guys. And yeah. they can talk to me because I have, well, I have people. But we want to talk about Top Gun. But first, I mean, we have to. Yeah. Tomcat Hornet. You have, if I read your bio correctly, a thousand hours or more in each. And so... Everybody loves the Tomcat. I want to be the first guy, but I wasn't. Well, there nobody was a, ever. There's always a guy that beats yeah, you. You yeah. know. I assume you flew the A's because that was probably a while back. As far as the Tomcats, the A model. Yeah, my Tomcat time. So let's just sandwich the career. Five years Tomcats, all F14 A's. Then it was like, which lot are you flying? You know. So there were differences in, in Tomcats. Never bomb dropping though. Purely fighter. Okay. Then the next 17 years were in the FA. Then the end of my career, I was a Tomcat and Hornet guy. 
as you a came K. Back to it? Wow. Yeah, I was day night qualified in the F-14D, the Super Tomcat, oh, and the Hornet. Oh. And you know what? Most of my combat time, and I'll honestly tell you, you're gonna be in combat and they're shooting at you. Boy, it's good to be in an F-14 to go fast, and the other dude is head down running the laser. So most of my bomb dropping, I'd go, ah, put me in a Tomcat, please. <laughs> so, well, when you're the air wing commander, you can- Yeah, you usually uh, get your choice. Yeah, you can yeah. get your choice. But just as far as going out, flying around, maybe BFM, but maybe just goofing, I don't know, compare the two or maybe contrast the two. Yeah, I'll give you, you know, there's, what do we say in the Top Gun business? Goods and others? That's right. <laughs> okay. The Hornet, here's what I would tell guys about the difference between the two platforms. When I was flying F-14As, I'd call it a coin toss. Were you going to launch or were you going down? We spared every single mission. If there were two planes, two and a spare. So you'd always go through a brief. There was a good chance you were going to go flying. If you were the spare. If you were the spare in a Tomcat. F-18, we didn't spare. Our first squadrons were like, we were 98%. They were brand new. Fully mission capable, brand new. Yeah. But they were reliable too. The Tomcat had reliability problems, quite frankly. So I call one an analog platform, one a digital platform, and you know which one's which. Now, the D was more reliable, but, you know, it was probably better than our A models. Strengths, Tomcat, particularly the D. People say, how fast does it go? And I said, I did this one time. I got level at 10,000 feet. I slowed up to about 150. Flaps got to come down. So I'm level, plug in the blowers, I want you to make a guess. 150 to 610. What amount of time would that take? 30 seconds. (laughs) 9.7. Now, it didn't have any tanks on it, Ah. but it was an amazingly fast airplane. And so, uh, you know, I do have one little story as JOs, but I'll I'll tell you later as to how fast did I ever go? People always ask that question. I go, oh, okay. Did you repeat the test in the Hornet? Because I'm guessing. You know what? I never did because it's like, not that fast. So when an F-18, and you know, we're, I was the CO at Top Gun when we had F-16Ns, a really fast airplane with the F-110 engine, 27,000 pounds of thrust. When they met a Hornet head on, and a guy decided he was going to try to leave in an F-18 with single center line, you're in trouble because that F-16 would go up to 800 indicated. And so they chase you down. And all the instructors go, it's like a little dog. Whoop, 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 whoop. And they, you just turn around and go, uh-oh, I got to turn back into this guy because they just eat you up. They'd have 240 overtake from behind you. So you had to turn and fight. That was all there was to it. So when you compare the two, acceleration, top-end speeds, the Hornet was good at taking speed and using it with altitude, and it was pretty efficient up high. But we're always limited with, you know, we're carrying 15,000 double bubble in a standard uh, F-18C model. But it was very reliable. And it was way easier to land on the boat. Let's say that. Compare those two. As an ensign or a lieutenant JG, I'll tell you what, the Tomcat's a handful of airplane to land on the boat. The D was just about as hard. It had some different cues and a little better HUD. And the autothrottles were always horrible in the Tomcats. The autothrottle in the Hornet was, I called it, the primary method of landing. I told my maintenance guys, if the auto throttle's not up, that airplane's down. And they go, oh, they'll be up if you know the skipper says that. So we, we uh, you know, you know, the primary land way of landing is you know auto throttles. No, I don't know anybody that would land manually. All right, so both are on the line. You're going to take one, let's say, to an air show. Which one are you going to jump in? 
Well, what's your purpose? You know, yeah. <laughs> Tomcat was always fun if it was if it was slicked down. Here's a little aside. The tanks were never made for combat and all that. Those were called ferry tanks. And then once they started putting them on, they go, oh, we can get longer cycles. So it was kind of controversial at the beginning as to Tomcats normally flew with no tanks. And when VF-1 and 2, 14 and 32, all those new Tomcat squadrons, they didn't fly with tanks for a long time. And then it was like, uh uh-oh, now we go out for an hour and 45 cycle, the tanks are on. And the airplane didn't maneuver all that well with those tanks. A lot of drag plus the Phoenix rails were draggy. So if I was to fight, though, one-on-one, if a guy was really good, like Dale Snodgrass, he would give anybody a hard time, in particular if it was a B model, you know, with the bigger engines or a D. I think a Tomcat can give any Hornet a run. You know, a Hornet's way better in the phone booth, as you and I know, the slow fight, gun at a guy, going a high angle of attack. The other part of the F-14 is this. Number one, if it was a B or a D, later in the time frame, the airplane was blowing up. What do you mean blown up? The engine would come apart. Really? So... You well, know, well, hold on. The A was always notorious for stalls. Stalling. Yeah, so it stalled, but it didn't blow up on you. Okay. <laughs> Never heard this. Oh, yeah. We've lost several Tomcats. And until a crew from, I think it was the Discovery Channel, was on one of the ships. Oh, yeah, it yeah. was VF-31. They had a high-power camera. They zoomed in, and they could see exactly because no one knew why was it coming apart. And I will say this. The guy that was lost was one of my fellow commanding officers when we were COs together, Scooter Lamoureux, Scotty. His dad was an F-8 pilot. Rest in peace. He was the nicest guy. He was in the backseat when that thing blew up. And his wife still lives here in San Diego. And there was film of that from Discovery? Because I'm thinking of one, I think I've seen it, where it does a high It was that one because they came by and it was on a flyby. High Q, as we call it, maybe 1.2 or something, thing came apart. And just instantly both of them gone. But I believe there were two that that happened to. I don't know if the other one was a B or not, but it was a 110 engine, and it was some sort of a liner that was in it, and they go, oh, this is why. It's not a containment of the compressor blades and all that, but I think I've got most of that accurate. Yeah, well, so, this is dangerous business, so you have to is. assume some level so, of risk. You know, and so there's some big differences. So you, you had that, and then you always had the aspect of if you pushed it too far, that thing would get in a spin, and if it got in a spin, there's somebody that you know, alluded to the fact they don't know if it was really post-all gyration or they actually got it out of a spin. But I, it was one of my students that was in the FRS, and he later was a Top Gun instructor. But I think he got into a spin, and he actually got it out of a spin. But as far as all the other guys, there were a lot of ejections in flat spins. And the movie, the first movie, when Goose hits the canopy, that was accurate. That's right. Because Snakes you had to, about that on part the of the procedure of ejecting was to blow the canopy, look up, is it still there in the dead air above you? Then you eject. That so, assumes a lot of wherewithal in the moment. <laughs> it does. And so th- here's the point. How good do you feel about taking that thing? We used to take it to zero airspeed all the time. Then it became a prohibitive maneuver because somebody went into a spin. Because if you did it right, you came straight back down, and then all that air would go up, and the engine would stall. We all love doing it. You'd watch the yawstring go the opposite way. It was yawstring on the nose, which yeah, is funny. Yeah, you see that in Final Countdown, whenever they're yeah. showing the... Uh, yawstring. Yeah. It'd be a piece of parachute cord. That's how you took the yaw out. Yeah, because if it was off to the side, yeah, you, you knew go, you had you, some side got, slip. Yeah, side slip. So we'd come back down, but then they go, uh, somebody just went in a spin and had to eject from that. No more zero airspeed tail slides. Because you didn't know if the airplane was coming over here or going over there. 
if you did just right, you went about 10,000 feet backwards downhill. <laughs> so it's like, oh, the F-22 can do that now, but it can come I know, out of it just fine. I know, but yeah. it comes out good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It does a 250-foot loop, too. A whole different, yeah, yeah, true, a whole different story. All right, so everyone loves the Tomcat. I never flew it, but I had a chance to the fly Turkish, with it. And the Turkissaurus. Oh, absolutely. It's it was got, a handful of airplanes. We had a whole podcast about it, a whole yeah. series of the Tomcats. And the, and the roll, so. roll was sloppy. Because it was rolling with differential tail. And spoilers, right? And spoilers. Yeah. You know, yeah spoilers yeah. are bad. Grumman like that. Yeah. We talked about that in one of our episodes, too. All right. Let's talk about Top Gun. And the first time you mentioned it in your bio just now is when you showed up to be the CO. But had you attended before that? You had to have. Well, the I prerequisite. Mean, I'm talking to the Yeah, folks but do here. I have wings? <laughs> yes. Okay. Had I gone through the class? Yes. Okay. So let's give you a parallel story here. I go through, but I didn't go through in the Tomcat. So I went through with the first f-18s from the fleet now vx4 had gone through with f-18s early to on, right? yeah. but i was paired up so this was kind of fun i went through as an experienced tomcat guy in the f-18 because when i got to my first squadron 113 they go hey have you gone to top gun i said no well you're the fighter training guy that you're going right now so i went down there i got paired up with a vx4 tomcat so they go we want to mix section we want to see how it works and so yeah, it was a great guy I went through with. And uh, <laughs> the great part was uh, Randy Cunningham always tells a story of, he goes, I come by, I'm over the top, I see this Tomcat down there. And Cunningham rolls in in this A4 behind us, you know, our MIG killer, our ace. And so Duke rolls in behind him because he didn't see me. And so right as he's rolling in behind my flight lead, my Tomcat, my section, I shoot him. And it's like, Where'd he come from? He always gave me a hard time at the bar about that when I was. The Tomcat was like your decoy. He was like my decoy. The aluminum overcast. Yeah, <laughs> so you went through in the Hornet, and the Hornet. this was what year? 1985. Two ah. years before the movie. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's I was where, a lieutenant. Yep. Tom Cruise is a lieutenant. Life, Pete Mitchell. Life Off was go. good. There we life go. Life was good. So the movie, viewers should be aware, our character, Pete Mitchell, you know, Cougar has his issue, so Maverick gets to go with Goose. And ostensibly, the story takes place while he's at Top Gun, and then, of course, there's this thing in the Indian Ocean, he's got to go back. Was that how it was back then? You know, I've been asked that, I can't tell you, countless times. Here's the difference that people say, what's the difference to movies? I said, the first movie is a lot of contrived cinematography. I'll give you an example. When the F-14 gets into its flat spin, do you know where that was done? I think they just had camera angles. They, that it was around, on right? the pier at Alameda on a crane. And then they poured lighter fluid on it. It was about a six-foot model, and then it went into a spin as they released it. So a lot of this stuff is just upside down above each other. So it's a lot of cinematography, the stuff they run around Yuma, low, turn on the dump mask. So none of it's like the second movie, I always tell people, that's pretty much all real except for the contrived airplane at the beginning. Well, and the super close stuff they do. Yeah, as super well. close yeah. is not quite splitting the section. Yeah. So the, the first movie, you know, there's not a Top Gun trophy. Is There kind of was, but there kind of is not. But uh, there's no trophy. You don't hang around the pool and do that. It's a whole different graduation ceremony. The students aren't off at the beach all night. They're all studying their rears off. So there's none of the frivolity. But it won't be a fun movie if it's not. No. What, it, I, what so, I'm trying to lead you towards here, go ahead, work give with me, me the answer. <laughs> is power projection. So, oh, there was a course that was only five weeks long. Not six, five weeks. Okay. And you know what? If they sent you, you passed. You know, it was sort of like you fog a mirror. Off you go. You got your patch and uh, you got, you know, your critique of how you did. And the course was over after five weeks. 
You know, the idea was to train a training officer for the squadron. From their first tour. From their first, it may be at the midway of their first tour. They've gone on a cruise, they're experienced. No one had a thousand hours that would go down through that class. But they were like good pilots, solid guys, good officers. And it was like, okay, that was the incentive. So it was the commanding officer's choice. He sent them down. Totally changed around. By the time I got there as the CO, all the criteria changed. And they're really trying to build the weapon schools. And this Top Gun staff would come out of that too. When 1994 through 96, it changed over to SFTI, Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor, that were part of the Strike Fighter Weapons Training Plan. And I can go into, there's probably a little bit of unknown that wasn't even in Brad's book, but beyond that, the gentleman that really embraced it, that really got it going and accelerated, was a guy named Jerry Singleton. Hook was his call sign. He was our Commodore. Mm -hmm. And so he said, hey, Trotz, we need to go down to this Sinatra symposium. I go, what's Top Gun doing at Sinatra? He goes, I have a plan. And what we're going to do is we're going to build a continuum that's the SFWT, because SFWT is the way of the future. And we went down there and we pitched the SFTI program along with SFWT, this whole Top Gun transition. The TRACOM embrace it. They go, we're putting $110 million towards this program. No one ever knew that. And so they went to the CNO. They went to, you know, how we had all those codes in this and that and the other. And they go, that program's awesome. Everybody needs it. And so because of Jerry Singleton's vision, that program was instituted for the E2s, the S, all the S3s. Yeah. Everybody had it. And so everybody went, wait, we need, and he called it, you know, <laughs> cradle to grave. I don't know about the grave part. But what it really was was, hey, from the training command, when they start flying to when they first fly in section and the stuff that they do in instruments, and then we build a section leader, then we build a division leader, then we build a strike leader. And so they figured out, we've got this continuum that takes you towards command, and it was really ingenious on his part. But Top Gun was the genesis of all that with, we have this idea, but the idea expanded. And then CEOs of destroyers are coming out to Top Gun to see me. I'm like, okay, I don't know what we do for a destroyer, but it's a great idea. Well, they want to do it in their community. They want to right? do it in their community. Yeah. So Navy-wide, it was fabulous. Yeah. When Top Gun came about, it was because of poor performance in Vietnam. So the idea was, we need to do something. And the solution they came up with, in an alternate universe, they could have come up with different solutions. But the solution they came up with, as you said earlier, let's take someone about midway through their first tour, a, a young lieutenant, maybe even Lieutenant JG, and they've had maybe a deployment, they've got experience, they come, now we're going to give them very concentrated, and like you said, about you know short five-week training on, here's what we, as a community, think is the best way to tackle a problem. Oh, by the way, they had their chance to get their hands on some exploited aircraft and they what's the best way to dogfight what's the best way to shoot a missile so that worked for a while but then it sounds to me like the power projection as it was called prior to 96 i believe where you take like the guy from the movie you take him out give him train send him back the problem was some squadron co's didn't want to send their best people some squadron co's didn't want to hear what they had to say when it got back and like you said, you couldn't fail. So it was great for when it started in 69, but by the mid 80s, all of a sudden, like, well, maybe that parallel universe solution could have been a better one because we're seeing these other issues. So historically, though, if you look at it, you go, there was a thing called FEGU, Fleet Air Gunner Reunion. And that was, was in it? El Centro. With, there was a trailer 
at Miramar. <laughs> oh, that's the trailer. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, there were Miramar right. and there. Okay. And they would tow banners and they'd shoot at it, you know. And so there were guys like a, a great guy, Dave Frost, was part of the original group. So he always gave me all this stuff. So then we found that the missiles weren't very reliable. So they pointed that out. The kill ratio was low, but they pointed towards training as being the big deficiency. So they said, hey, let's get some focused training. Then we went to power projection. We had no control over who showed up. Bring your airplane. Bring some guys that turn wrenches on it and whoever it is. We actually had O5s going through the power projection course oh, sometimes. Okay. Believe it or not, because they go, well, I think I'll go because we had O5s going, XOs showing up. So we all knew that, hey, it can't be really the department heads are busy doing other stuff. The leadership's got a lot of stuff to do, but it needs to be a solid junior officer. But to really do it correctly, the course had to be longer, which is then 1994. And I'll give you the guys that were the core of the architecture to it. There was a guy named Mike Barger, crusher, brilliant officer, pilot, tactician, smart guy. He ended up, he and his brother kind of put JetBlue together. Very successful guy. He teaches at the University of Michigan now. He's got his doctoral degree. So smart dude. Lang Sias, who was actually a lawyer before he came to Top Gun, which is he sat in Newport looking out the building at Newport. El Toro went, that looks cool. And I'm bored being a lawyer. That was his story. And then uh, Steve Foley, Axel, who was compadres with those characters. Then Rob Field was my XO. So Rob Field's like, and he's one of the greatest pilots, brilliant guy, superb individual, cool. If there was a guy like the ice that was cool, it was Rob Field. CEO of the Blue Angels and Air Wing Commander. That's the big double whammy that one could pull off in the Navy, retired 06. So they put it together, and then my job was to pitch it, Okay. If you're ready for a little story that happens on a Friday afternoon, they go, okay, Skipper. You just showed up, right? I'd, I'd been there, yeah, not very long. I mean, you know, my engraved name is just getting dried on my door. <laughs> I don't even have my models arranged in my office. And it's like Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock, and ice comes in. Hey, Skipper, you know, you're going to Washington, D.C. on Monday to pitch this SFTI thing, SFWT. Well, yeah, I knew that because they had my airline ticket and stuff. I go, yeah, 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 I've got it. Have you had a chance to look at all the slides? Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm going to look at them over the weekend. You know, I'm busy with my eight-inch inbox of stuff of just having taken over. And he goes, well, why don't you come down to one of the training rooms and let's go through it so you can kind of get it down. I said, yeah, that's cool. You guys are sticking around. It's like 515. I thought you'd be over at the club. No, no, no. We'll go down. Axel's here, too. And come on down. So... I walk into the training room. There's 36 guys in there, the entire staff. Little do I know, I'm going through a murder board. Attention on deck. I go, wait a second. We don't need this many people here. Oh, no. This is how we do it. This is how we do it. You know, and I was like, I'd never been to a murder board. (laughs) Yeah, but I knew what they were. I was new to the squadron. I was like, oh, my God. And they sat there. I went through, stumbled through, slide by slide. And they beat me up for the next hour plus i said isn't it time to get some beer and you know get to the club no you need when you do this you're hesitating and you keep looking back so it was like okay look i promise i'll get this down i'll be working on it all weekend it's like it was my trial by fire and i was just another lieutenant at that point and i said okay okay i get it i get it and you know what as it went on and i went around and visited it got more polished and better along the way and they really resisted it, the fleet squadrons did. So I went to 
each Commodore, and I, what I really needed was the Commodore to get behind me and go, okay, we're all here. Listen to what these guys are doing. They call them Swifties. That was the call sign. Oh, it's the Swiftie program. You know, so guys were kind of giving us a hard time. So it's like, no, this is a good thing, and this is why. And so, uh, you know, it took a while to get going. Some resistance. There's always resistance to change. Well, and it's easy to denigrate what you don't know. Yeah. It's threatening. Yeah. Right? And then I'm taking the guy for 10 weeks, and the Commodore is giving me assets, not necessarily the squadron. If it worked out that way, but it would be a group, and they go, okay, we're going to share airplanes. But he'd go, you're giving it to him. So it was only as good as the Commodore was behind it. And so I had to go to Cecil and pitch it, and I went to Oceana with the fighter wing there, and I think Snort was in charge of it there, so Snort was behind me. So it was like, hey, guys, this is a good thing. We're getting behind it. But let's take a step back, because we identified some of the shortcomings with the first solution, which in itself was very effective, but wasn't perfect. So now we said, hey, you know what? The Air Force and the Marines, as I understand Brad's book, have these programs, like you said earlier, it's a progression. It's cradle to grave. You take someone fresh out of flight school, so they are a winged naval aviator. But now, how do we make sure they get through the training? Because prior to that, a CO could run his or her squadron, I guess his squadron back then, however they wanted. So if you went from a Tomcat squadron here to a Tomcat squadron over there, they might do simple things like intercepts or BFM totally different. And now you have this group of experts, let's call the Top Gun bros, who have looked at the threat, have had murder boards and discussions and talked to industry, and they said, hey, look, that works, but we found this. This works, but this is what we think is the best. And you almost can't argue with results because you get that, right? So now, okay, if we think this is the best solution, let's codify it and let's make everybody go through it. Because in the end, sure, COs should be free to do what they want with their squadrons to a point. But what we really want are effective warfighters. And so that's where, as I understand it, the Strike Fighter Weapons and Tactics Program, which creates Strike Fighter Tactics Instructors, but with that was this, hold on, we're doing just fine over here in VFA, Humpty Friends. That was the rub. That was the break X. Eh, wait a second. Now, we know we're doing it worse. And that was really what I was faced with that Dog took up after me to carry the mantle for. Mm -hmm. It's got to change, and this is going to change. And again, when the leadership got behind it, and then other places started embracing it, it's like, this is a really good thing. Now... We got a more seasoned guy. You got to remember that. We never trained a woman. And I know some women have gone through it because when I was in the Navy, we didn't have women in the fighter squadrons. They were just starting. So come 99, it was was all relatively new. So when those individuals came to us, they'd have a thousand hours quite often. So we got a more seasoned F-18 or F-14 person, pilot or crew into the course that was going to shore duty. So there's the difference. It wasn't somebody that you'd only get one more cruise out of the, under the power projection five-week deal, but the 10-week thing changed it, and the other part of it became if we didn't like their performance and I had to become the first guy, Skipper, oh, yeah. we got to talk to you. And I always knew when the training officer would come down with the XO, you know, it was probably going to be something serious, and unfortunately we had I had to send a guy home. I remember it was only being one, but now the who went into it. Not, oh, you limp him along and okay, he's he's got a couple, you know, I I got a lot of those turns wrong down too, but it was like, no, he's not getting it. We're giving him a refly here and here and here, still not happening. And then I have this tough conversation with the Commodore 
Because they've invested in the invested CEO first. Invested in and the, yeah. the CEO first, but the Commodore would always be part of it because that guy had orders to the weapons school. Now it's, now it's all changed because you're going, you're not going to wear a patch. So that was a little difficult. And I can remember that being either one or two people that I had to do that to. I can remember one in particular. It was hard. But pretty rare, it sounds like. And Very the point, rare. The point you made a moment ago, right, is when you went through, you left your squadron for five weeks, went on TAD, we'd call it, right, and went back to that squadron. When I went through in 2000, I left VFA 86. I knew already that I was going through and staying on the staff. And in that case, I had two deployments under my, I was really yeah. close to 1,000 hours. seasoned aviator. Yeah. You'd been in combat. It's like, oh. Jello knows his stuff. I still He's got struggled a thousand through hours. the course. Huh? I still struggled through the course. So. <laughs> now let me say, let me do this. I had to go through the class. And I go, wait a second now. You know, I got more hours than any of you. And so in the F-18. So now they go, no, Skipper. Uh, wait, you went through as a CO? Oh, yeah, as a CO. <laughs> I had to go through 1v1 and some other stuff okay. to be, quote, a wingman. You know, put me in the back. I'm going to get shot. It'll be over with, you know. And so, and there's a story about the Black Hornet, too. So anyhow, uh, they go, okay, this one v one You know, I wouldn't get my little curves right. I'm sitting there going, I got about a million things to do in my office. And I'm, let's just go out and fight. There'll be about three or four things. And, and I thought to myself, self, you're pretty good at this shit. Let me think. When I was a CEO, I was with the Red Patch. I was at 2,000 hours. And you'd flown nonstop, probably. Oh, yeah. I'd been that. flowing my rear off. Yeah, yeah. We flew 40, 50 hours a month since I was lieutenant. So I come in there going, I, I, I heard the exile go, give me the best guy. I want to fight the best guy. And they go, you sure? I go, yeah. I say, who is it? And they go, it's Badger. Call sign like Badger. You go, this guy's going to be like a wild animal or something. Marine built like this. There are two guys that are really good. I want you, you need to fight Badger. I go, okay, schedule me with him. We went out and I mean to tell you, I'll never forget this. And I go, I know when I'm going vertical, I know how I'm going to force him up, this and that. And I felt like I really knew how to drive the F-18. What airplanes were you in? F-18As. So both of you, though? Yeah, both okay. A models. Old so lot, the difference is... A, old lot A. There was no difference. The, lot right. A Hornets. No, the difference is the, no, the, the stick the, actuator. The nut behind the wheel. Exactly. Yeah. So I get there. I meet him. Boom. Right like I normally do this and that. And he starts to do the, you know, a move on me. And he goes, and he's telling me what I'm doing in my airplane. He goes, this is what your speed is. He was within five knots of telling me what he thought my speed was and when he was going to force me to start back down or not. And he was just that good. I mean, he, he beat me up in all three engagements. He might have had six or 700 hours of the Hornet. I, just so, I was so humble, but I thought I, I realized at that point, these guys are that good. And so I then realized there are going to be some things maybe they learned leadership-wise, but I'm here to facilitate the success of the unit and pitch their program. And at that point, it was like, you know what? I'll just be in the back and <laughs> become a pin cushion on some of these deals. Yeah, yeah. And, and they even brought down, there was another guy that was a CAG later on, George Dom, oh, yeah. CEO of the Blues. Yeah. So they snuck George in to fight me in the unknown 1v1s, and, and he had a brand new EPE engine Hornet. But by that point, I was thinking, I think I held pretty well against old George. And we went home together and I said, Okay, now who are you? In the other airplane, he goes, It's Elwood. <laughs> and I go, Okay, let's go back to Miramar. Also very successful after the name. Oh, yeah, he's no a, big surprise. Yeah, he's, he's done very well. All right, so Trotz, earlier we compared, since you had experience in both, the Tomcat and the Hornet. Now you had experience in both in the power projection and the SFWT. What did you see from your point of view of the advantages and disadvantages of either? Because from my point of view, I think of 
the first thing that we came up with as, oh, it was good enough, but now we fixed it. But is that true? I mean, maybe that's a faulty assumption. Maybe there were some advantages to the old way. You know when I thought that we really, you know, it was like the harvest finally happened when I was a keg. And then we'd get those guys what year back. Was that? that was six years later. So 2000 So 94 to 96, I'm at Top Gun, about 98. So it's like four years later, I start seeing these guys seated. And it's like, oh, we want him. Or we want that person because they're top gun guys coming back to the fleet. Now, there was an issue with that old term green main. And a lot of those guys didn't know what that term was for a long time. Do you know what a green main was? Okay. They had to go back to the fleet. So that put pressure on, there were two things. We're moving to Fallon. You're not at Miramar anymore. And we're putting on a commitment that follows top gun. Now, a lot of my instructors, in fact, the vast majority didn't have a green main. And so they could get out after top gun. So it was sad that we lose that talent to the airlines because we had some really super people that we didn't keep, which was a shame. But again, then they they had their choice. But after that, it became, I don't know that I want to be a Top Gun guy and go back to the wing because I won't be able to get out of the Navy. So we had that kind of, there was resistance to coming to Top Gun and we're going to Fallon. It's a great place. Was that coincidental (laughs) or was that connected? with the SFWT and the SFTI? Because it was about the same time, right? The move was in 96? Yeah, that was deliberate. And that was but it. not related to SFWT, I don't think, right? Wasn't it had, had to do you with- you went through, I believe that if you went through, you needed like a keg strike ops tour that followed your tour with the weapons school. So I think that it was sort of like, we're sending you a Top Gun. You're at the end of your tour with the squadron. You're going to Top Gun. Then you're going to a weapons thing to follow or Top Gun itself. And so the Navy is like, we want a chunk out of you. You know, we, we need something back. Right. So, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the Green Main. I'm talking about the move from Miramar to Fallon. Very end of 96. Right. The, I went up to look at the buildings and then Dog did change command at Miramar. He moved them up. Why? Was it BRAC or was oh, it SFWT? BRAC did everything. So it had nothing to do with SFWT. It just so uh, happened no, both no, those things. No, 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 it was, it was, no. It was a deliberate. It was a deliberate plan. Within, I think it was it called N five. Do you remember N eight, N five? It was the, the the head guy was always a three star admiral in the Pentagon, OPNAV. You know, op, I thought it was like N ninety eight, but I might be thinking of something else. Eighty eight. So, in any event, that was the your top naval aviator in the Pentagon, and they went okay. There was the whole move under John Lehman gave up a ship and then we built the Fallon ranges and Fallon got bigger and bigger. It made sense. And so then it was Brack. I'll never forget playing golf with my three-star boss at Air Pack. And he was like, he goes, now, why are we giving this up? I go, you're in charge of Air Pack. I don't know. Yeah. You know, why are the guys at El Toro coming here and taking it over? You know, so no one knew. It was political, very, very political as to which bases in California got closed. George got closed. El Toro got closed. A whole bunch of them. So they realigned everything. Okay, E2s are going here. These groups are going there. And then these helicopters are all coming to Miramar. They put like a billion dollars into the infrastructure at Miramar and said, see you later. Thanks for the hangar. Yeah. 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 And so we moved to Fallon, but it was all laid out years in advance with this is how we're going to save money. And I think it was during the Clinton administration of downsizing the military and closing up bases around the country. And honestly, who knows what made sense to anyone? Because a lot of it was like, oh, wow, how'd we give that up? 
If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. I was just wondering if, and I think you answered it, but in other words, it wasn't that somebody said, hey, we're going from power projection to SFWT, we're gonna make SFTIs, and we can't do that in Miramar. Well, we have to do that in Fowler. You know what? It brought us closer to our one of our core missions, dropping bombs and strike. Otherwise, you had to go to Fallon. Yeah, or then you go to Fallon, and then you're, not, then you're not refining those skills. So I think in the long run, the Fallon ranges are unrivaled, just like the ones down at Nellis. So those two are the gems of DOD for air power. And so you go, hey, you're not striking anything other than Shoba down at San Clemente, and it's not a great target. So it really made sense to say, hey, we're going to do these big strikes, and this is where we'll be, and we'll integrate you in to strike you. Okay? So then we became, it was NSOC, NSW, you know, I couldn't keep track of all of it. But there'll be an admiral there. So that was all the whole new alignment. And then we would be beneath it was Dave Nichols. Tim Keating was was uh, very much part of that architecture and the thought processes. He, which, and these guys, these these guys were smart dudes. Yeah. I don't know if you ever knew Nickel, Dave Nichols. I did. He was he was the admiral there when I was yeah. leaving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he and I worked together as to how would we go. My biggest issue with going to Fallon was control of our assets. And I just said, and that was the one thing I passed the dog. I said, we've got to control our airplanes. We can't just say, hey, let's. You know, I'm sorry to say it, but anybody can fly these F-18s. And you go, no, we need to, we need them for our class. We need to control them. So losing that command spot I saw was really critical. And now you're a department head under NSOC or whatever, you know, I don't know the names, NOC, NSOC. Nautic. Nautic. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I was long gone. Yeah, and well, so, you know, it was like, uh, we got to control our planes. These are our assets. And we were in Echelon 3 under Air Pack. So when I needed something, my boss was a three-star. he go, we need this. And we had a real problem with maintenance when I first got there. Our jets were horrible. We gave up the F-16s, 16 of them, flew them away. They were in perfect condition. They all went to the desert or to museums. You'll see one in Pensacola. And then they go, oh, you got all these Lot 8 old Hornets. And the XO comes to me and says, Skipper, these things are departing flight all the time. They're dangerous. So what we found was that the contractors that were working on the airplanes didn't have very good knowledge. So we brought in a really smart Canadian guy that was a test pilot and the rigging was wrong on the leading edge flaps on most of them. They were way off. So guys were departing flight all the time, which is unusual in a Hornet. And so we got them all tightened up. We actually ended up firing them, you know, one of the biggest contractors on the planet, put it up for bid, got a new contractor in and then kept the course going. So that was our biggest challenge in the whole time I was there. 
if you were in Miramar, where the squadrons were, right, yeah. except for the F-18s, yeah. theoretically, and I, I thought I read this in Brad's book, oh, we got a problem with this airplane, we'll just tow you over another one, and you can still make the course happen. No, the airplanes came from, the F-18s came from... Right, they came from Lemoore, but Cecil for a Tomcat. and Lemoore, yeah. the Tomcats were, you know, there, right at Miramar. But, By the time uh, you got to Fallon, they, now things have to come in specifically oh, for yeah. the course. Fallon really exacerbated all that, yeah, yeah. and I wasn't there. We changed command at, at Miramar. Goodbye, good luck. And then it's like the families all have to move, yeah. and it's, uh, it was hard. The gears weren't exactly and, meshing. I don't and you said earlier it was somewhat difficult to get people to come to Top Gun, not only because of the work ethic, which is both hard but also amazingly rewarding, but also now that we have these green mains and these other things. Well, that might be okay if it's in Miramar, but when it moved up to Fallon, again, I know you left, but that had to exasperate that okay problem. it got hard with green mains at miramar a little bit harder because what we found there was inconsistency with orders like one guy would have it somebody else didn't have it oh, wow. okay then we go we're moving to fallon and it was like i don't want to go to fallon or i'm done after this and you know there were quite a few of them that got out and it was like ah, man the fallon thing like i said i always talked to dog i said this is gonna be tough man you know and he's did an eloquent job at getting them up there and getting it going, but it was a tough road to hoe. Yeah. And so uh, it wasn't hard getting somebody to come to Miramar. We were real choosy with, you know, who do we want to become an instructor? And then we'd have this discussion and it was like, okay, let's ask this guy. I don't remember anybody ever turning us down because it was not many of the staff each year that would turn over before to six people. It wasn't that many. So I was like, yeah, I want to, oh man, that's an honor. I want to be at, at Miramar. Now you're not flying F-16s anymore. F-16s were a nice draw. Miramar, F-16s, and the previous course were all made it pretty easy for all my predecessor Tomcat buddies. That know. must have been the heyday. So I have, I have some listener questions. These are from Patreon supporters, and it has to do with the move up to Miramar. So let me ask you one of these. Uh, Stephen <laughs> no, Lee- moved to Fallon. You're right. Again, <laughs> what were the advantages moving Top Gun to Fallon over Miramar, Stephen Lee asks. Any disadvantages or aspects of Miramar that was missed? Okay, you know, here's this desert environment that looks like a lot of the places we get deployed to. So now you've got real targets that are defended by adversaries right out of Fallon. So the training, way better, more realistic. Right. The ranges giving you the feedback of where did the bombs land. And it's close. Yeah, you're, you're right done. There. You're we roll right fuel, in there. Yep. The weather's pretty good up there, except in the winter. It can be tough. And so, uh, you know, when you go to Fallon, you're focused. It's not like not like San Diego. So the diversions, yeah. you know, all the fun stuff. You know, so when the, when the Top Gun's up there or the Air Wing would go there, as you've done many times like me, you're very focused on the training. Oh. And the ranges are fabulous not much else to do we fly but i I always drink beer at the bar i was based there and my wife had uh, very good (laughs) relationships with other spouses because like you said learn to ride horses come on that's right so along those lines bethany atchison says did the location change affect retention or cause broader morale issues with the members and their families and i will just address that for me go ahead i love the tour it was the hardest i ever worked I still call it my high water mark. I didn't scream for command, so that might have been a different situation. But I loved it. I took so much from it. But living in Fallon in the few hours for the, the guys doing the work, when you're not working, yeah, there's not a lot there. And the families had some struggle with it. And then when I was there was when they had all that leukemia stuff. You the water. That? The water. I thought, oh, I wonder if he's going to talk about the water or whatever they think. And there were a lot of children, around, yeah. a lot of children with leukemia, which is like, Including oh my someone gosh. whose name you dropped earlier. 
But did you notice that? Did uh, as, again, you had left. Well, by then, here's but... the deal. You got to remember, I'm dealing with Miramar for two and a half years, and then I'm getting bits and pieces of you know what's about to happen when we go to Fallon. My mission, my job was to try to make it as seamless as possible. Go up and look at the academic facilities, compare them to what we had. Go and look at the hangar and see how the hangar looks compared to the decrepit old hangar that we were in, you know. So there were some good things. And then the integration, because really the integration was going to be the most challenging. How do we fit with Strike? Because it was Strike U at that point. So now we're all going to be under the same umbrella with an admiral. But you're giving up your freedom, right? You were not you. Well, you were, yeah. Uh, well, you're you were giving the up your officer. autonomy. You're giving up control. Right. And yeah, so, that's a good way to put you it. know, control for us was everything because our adversary assets, we controlled. We controlled the quotas. We we were literally our own bosses. Even when we went from an echelon two to echelon three, that was the first thing that happened when I became a CO. We went under AirPAC. We weren't under AirPAC before. We reported to the CNO. And so which was, I think, N8 or N88 or whatever it was. But we then moved to having a three-star had this commander that was working for him. And I'll tell you what, having him, in this case, Rocky Spain, he was unbelievable. I, it was one call. I'd say, I, I call chief of staff. It's like, I need to talk to the admiral. And he'd right. solve our problems, yeah. get some more F-18s down, get more of what they need. Yeah. And it was like, this is great. So it was really good having him as our boss. Then you say, okay, now you're going to go work for an 06, and you're going to be a department head. Right, not, sharing assets. I don't know if they ranges. wear a command pin or not. They don't. And, okay, so. That was a, still a big issue when I got there four years later. Are they even called Skipper? I mean, yeah, we, well, because they're former CEOs. Former CEOs. So, yeah, yeah. we did so call it's them kind of a, Yeah, it was an interesting I bet. integration. I bet. I wasn't there, though. No, I, I got that. So, Michael, one more question in this line of events. His is an interesting one you don't think of too often. Did the training continue during the move, or did you take a pause from classes? I would have to go back and ask Dog Thompson if they paused. But they didn't miss too many beats. I think that there was a, okay, this many trucks, get your moves, housing was an issue. Well, you probably had some folks go early, some folks go later. Exactly. And then who was making the move and who's new. Yeah, because you go, Mm -hmm. I'm not moving to Fallon, but I'll help them for a few weeks, TAD or whatever it is, and I'll live in the BOQ for a couple months while it gets going. So I really... I never got into the weeds on that as to how to go. Yeah, I got, yeah. I had it. You've got yeah, it. That's right. <laughs> I'm luck. off to other things. <laughs> so on that note, you said later, by the time four years later ish, you were an air wing commander. Yeah. You're starting to see the fruits of oh, the yeah, SFWT, yeah. but put some teeth to that. In what way? That the maturity level of now these guys are now department heads that are coming out of the weapons school. So you're talking about SFTI. SFTI coming, back, to the coming back. Now mm-hmm. they're doing their strike ops tour. Or they're a department head in a squadron dependent on seniority. And wow, did they know how to lead. When a Top Gun instructor or an SFTI grad was there, it was like, those are our go-to guys within the air wing. They're going to help us with the planning process. And it was still Operation Southern Watch. We're kind of back into Iraq. And the personnel that you would have to go, hey, we're, we're going to. And we had this one mission that I went into Riyadh for. And I said, okay, we're going to hit them which is Iraq, the Southern Watch. We're going to hit 26 targets at one time, and it's going to be about 150 aircraft, multi-nation strike on the place. And I'll tell you, the, the people I went to, are these are my SFTIs, O4s. So, okay, let's plan this thing out. And it was 150 wow. aircraft between Air Force, I think the French did something, the Brits, 
and I don't think there were any Germans there, but it was... Trotz, let me ask you this same question, but different. How did the SFWT program, how did you see the benefits of that as an air wing commander in so much as not those individuals you just mentioned, although that's awesome point, but what about a brand new person like maybe me shows up to the squadron, a nugget, and now instead of you've got one CO that wants to train me one way, had I gone to a different squadron, it would have been different. Now I'm going through. So by the time you're sending me somewhere, not necessarily as the Air Wing commander, but you see me leave, did you? You see your document sitting over there, your binder? Mm -hmm. That's how it went. So to become a section leader, it was all laid out. To become a division leader, it was all laid out. And it was like, we used to have a thing called PQS, you know, the Navy, yeah. personal qualification standards. And that's what it was on a continuum. And so they'd get all these things checked off. So everybody was talking the same talk. So the briefs were very standardized because that's the way that this is the way that Top Gun shows us how to brief. But it was also strike. And so strike you, when they integrated, it was like this is how it flows. So they were very professional briefs, very timely. And then the skill set of the people that were doing the planning was way beyond where we were when we were 03s no 4s we go where are we going <laughs> you know what are we planning out <laughs> be in the middle of the night some yeah. contingency plan that was like you know where the heck is that why are we doing this but we didn't we just kind of threw stuff to the wall and sometimes it worked out we flew a lot though too but now there were standards and so that's what you would see and it was like it, you know the complaint that I always used to get as the air wing commander would be this brief is too long <laughs> <laughs> I, go, I go, okay, look, we're here four hours in advance because it's a big, big strike. So talk about it. Uh, let's talk about it for yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And what's the threat? And how's the intel? But it was very well formatted with the flow of here's the intel. Here's the weather. You know, it was very well integrated with this is how we're going to go about doing it. And it was really kind of the same across every air wing. So you knew that if you went over the Teddy Roosevelt, the East Coast Squadron air wings there, they're probably doing it the same way. And there's value in that because oh, then you don't huge. have to figure out what they're doing. Yeah, Everybody yeah. could be standardized yeah. and effective. And I think at least I saw this a couple times. I had a squadron when I was the train officer having left Top Gun. We had an SH-60 convert, basically. Call sign was Chopper. And he went through some of the SFWT because it was just the way that we all knew this is how you get smart incrementally. Yep. You're going to start with these flights. You're going to study these things. When you're at the home station, you go to the simulator and you can do these fancy weapons that otherwise you'd only read yeah, about. So you spun him up to get to a level faster than yep. he would have been with, well, we'll just watch and see how we do things, which is kind of what, you know, what we did yesteryear was like, we flew a lot. I have this CEO, you know, and he'd look, he'd look at me and I look at him and go, let's go. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it was, it was okay for us. You know, we were flying all sorts and we were very experienced. And he always would say it. He always goes, yeah, Trotter, you and I go out and, you know, we go, we, we, <laughs> we fought these 28 guys. Yeah. We never missed each other. And that's, but that was a whole different era in a way. Vietnam had its thing, you know, Cold War had a kind of different mindset and methodology. And I think that you know, the whole SFWT program brought us to another level of war fighting. Yeah, I think so. And in the case of Chopper, he was a super jail, we would call it, when I was the training officer. And then both of us went to VFA 94 yeah. as department heads. And uh, he ended up screening and I didn't. So he, he did pretty well. But, uh, you know, that's for other reasons besides just being tactical. But he, he ended up being very good in the F-18. And I think we can credit that program. And really, the smart people whose names you mentioned earlier, who said, hey, this is awesome. We're way better than we were in the 1960s. But now we think we can make it even better. And again, according to Brad Elwood, Book. 
it was a deliberate, hey, what are these other branches doing? The, the Marines had the WTI program. The Air Force had their WQT or something or other. So we, we kind of borrowed, but we also said, this is how we think we can be better, and they did. The, the other, as an aside, the relationship between the fighter weapons school at Nellis and Top Gun, so F-15 guys. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I ran into a guy the other day and I said, did you ever go on a guy named Kmart? He goes, Kmart? He was a three-star general. And I said, Kmart and I were both CEOs of, you know, he had the fighter weapons school for F-15 guys and I had Top Gun. He'd come down, I'd go up, and there was this exchange. We had some Air Force pilots that were so good and they were so influential. One I'll mention is Lurch. He was brilliant. That was the guy that we set out and got him day-night qualified. It was like, we're getting him. He came back with, whoa, whoa, landing on the ship at night. I was so proud of him, though. I was like, we need to get you that. It'll really, you'll see. This is really, this is what we do. And he came back. He was, it's like, that's a big achievement for an F-15 guy, not to flare at the boat, you know. <laughs> so he was very good, though. He was influential, and I don't know if you ever use that, the post. Do they still use that term, the post? What are we talking about? With, in the BFM with, circle? In the BFM yeah. circles, to say, yeah. He's the guy, that was all from him. He came down, he goes, okay, there's a thing called the post, that's where your turn radius is generated, and the speeds and all, and then he explained it, and it was like, this is cool, this is good stuff, but that came from them. But then we seeded them with, you know, some other things, and so uh, it was good, and we did certain things with other other foreign militaries that we had nice relationships with. Trots, if you haven't caught up to all my episodes, I know you're trying very hard. There's about 142 (laughs) I've got to go through, you know, it's like. Start with 154, are you familiar with the Precision landing mode, magic carpet. You know, I saw it and I, I thought sometimes I wake up middle of night and I need something to go to sleep with, but I don't want to do it You're then. <laughs> no, but I have gotten through about, you know, we just met. You I know. know. So yeah. via bones. But I, that's when I go, now what is this magic carpet? You need thing? to listen. I got to see it. Because all these other lurch guys. Well, let me ask you this. How do they even have a landing competition? It's all F-18s. And then it's all this magic stuff. So well, you know, now, doesn't everybody get a three-wire every but, single time? Right. Well, the point I was trying to make, maybe not very well, is that I think you could take almost any pilot now and send them to the boat. It sounds so easy, but I've not done I'm it. Gonna tell you what, I'm going to tell you something that concerns me, though. I just went to the Naval Aviation Museum, and I'm just some old dude hanging around looking at old airplanes. And I'll see these ensigns, and I know, I know they're all stashed. They're waiting for flight school. And so I, hey, guys, are you guys going to be Navy pilots? Oh, yes, sir. We are. Okay. So what do you want to fly? Oh, I want to fly the P-8. Okay, what? The P-8? Well, what is a P-8? Well, it's like a 737. Then you go right to the airlines. I said, oh, that's the thing that replaced the P-3. Well, what about F-18s? Oh, no. They're gone all the time. So I have this vibe, and I kind of keep a little pulse on the Navy as to how are things going in the Navy. The real spinoff to the first Top Gun movie is you couldn't get in the Navy. They turned down more good people than you'd imagine. I don't know what the second one's doing, but my whole concern becomes, on a broader sense, DOD, people that are motivated to serve this country and to be at the tip of that spear and go, you know, I can always go do the airline thing. I think that a long time ago that we made a mistake in making the commitment like 10 years. It should have just been stayed at four. Then somebody comes in, well, I'll be out of the Navy by the time I'm like 25 or 26. But I think it's such a long commitment and there's, I'm really concerned about the number of people that are coming in and what their motivations are to say, I want the easy life. Because it's not an easy life being on the ship, but it's a rewarding career serving our yep. country. And I'll tell you what, I, to this day, I'm so proud. And people say, hey, thanks. Now we say, you're welcome. Yeah. Because I loved, I loved it all. 
I wish you to save this to the end. I would say, all right, we're out of here. Let's go. Uh, but I have some more questions I need to throw out, and then I'll get you to the airport, okay? Uh, Michael Tenish says, how difficult was it to orient the instructors to the new task of the SFTI? How was resistance overcome? I think what you're going to say is there was none. They were trying to get you to. So easy. Yeah. <laughs> no, they had, you know, I was not that I didn't resist. It's like that was my job. But I didn't know the quality of what was it, you know, expected of me. An instructor will only have one or two topics that he has to murder board. Some might have three. He's the SME in one three areas. Two parts, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the Sparrow missile, the Phoenix, you know, AMRAM or whatever it might be. So they're the expert and the radar. Okay. You got to talk about this radar. I always say if anybody would ever sit through a Top Gun lecture, it's unbelievable the polish. They know which slide's coming up. Boop. So it's incredible. So I had to raise my standards to meet the expectations and what I needed to deliver to pitch the program, to make it good. And it was really, of my three command tours, that was the hardest one. And the reason is you got a lot of type A's and there are a lot of smart people there and they want to lead the squadron, except you're the guy in charge. But I'll tell you what, it was a challenging but rewarding tour. But wow, you had to just let these minds go. And it's sort of like what you see with the Kansas City Chiefs. They come up with all these goofy plays because they're all working together and they're doing it really good. And so really, it's Top Guns is kind of the same thing. You go, okay, they've got an idea. Some of them were a little strange, you know, when somebody was getting married and they had some bachelor party things that they wanted to do. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Because <laughs> I remember one of them had a, they had a letter, LOI, that came out for the bachelor party. I went, oh, wait a second. We're going to go to a foreign country for part of this. No, we're not. <laughs> we all know where that's going. Yeah, yeah. But to Michael's question, it wasn't the staff, the bros, right, as no. we call them, that you had to convince. It was the fleet. Oh, the fleet was, the fleet was, they had their shields up. They were like, you know, oh yeah, and pitchforks and yeah. All right. Gasoline. (laughs) Joe Kunzler wants to know, did you ever have to discipline a student or maybe an instructor? If so, can you please tell us how the conversation went? That's what I love about asking my Patreon supporters because you get these questions that it's like, that's actually an interesting question. And you don't usually get some of the time to cover these. But uh, so did you have any experiences you want to share? You know, I, I did get. You, know, with, you had to send a kid home for performance. You already talked yeah, yeah, about the performance. That was the hardest one. Yeah. That was a really difficult one, yeah. because that was like you and and that that person. Uh, it was tough. That was that was my hardest one there, and there were two hard days there. And we had a young man that committed suicide. That was one of our sailors, and that was really painful for me to say. The the command doesn't have many active duty people other than a few people load bombs, right. and the staff. And then everybody else, the vast majority of people at Top Gun are civilians. No one understands that. The graphic artists, all the people turning wrenches, they all work for a contractor. So you're dealing with civilians. So those were difficult, but yeah. Instructors, you know what? They're strong personalities. You kind of roll with it. It's a little bit like getting your butt kicked by some guy that's got a fraction of the hours of you, but he's just they're just that good because this is what they go out and do. So, you know, I was... I was Probably. Like, uh, who'd you say it was? Badger Arnett was his list. Oh, he works at my company. Or I work at his, I should say. Yeah, he's, at, he's, he's up there pretty Delta. high. Yeah, he's probably senior to uh, He's like <laughs> he's older too. like everything now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he, he, I flew yeah, with yeah, him once. So. Yeah. He okay. and, uh, I missed that part earlier. I think, I, think, uh, I think Axel was probably pretty good too. Okay. 
Here's one from John Clark. What were the major changes to the training curriculum as the two-place Tomcat was being replaced by the single-seat Hornets in terms of aircraft capabilities and pilot crew responsibilities? So you have to adapt the syllabus to the platform, I guess, but was there any major issues that you recall? I don't recall many. I was in that unusual section that they said, let's mix them. And that was really a VX-4 plan before it became VX-9. But I don't remember, you know, we'd pair Tomcats with Tomcats. Then if you had a mixed, it'd be a mixed division. The Hornets are here, the Tomcats are there. And, you know, we, we had those challenges, too. When you talked about the two platforms, I go, okay, the Tomcat's really fast coming out, but they don't want to be cruising in at 0.84 Mach into a strike for 400 miles. They go, oh, we got to back the speed down because that's not a good speed for us. So I don't remember many issues with because we would not do a division of Tomcats. We just wouldn't have that many. So it'd usually be two Tomcats or they'd be in a different division of mixed F-18 Tomcat divisions when we'd employ them. Well, and I should tell John, you need to go get Brad's book because it's very exhaustive oh, on yeah. all of that stuff and That's the syllabus amazing. and the way it changed and the yeah. Malibu conference. All right, Victor Jagasitz, what was the main perceived threat in those years? I guess we'll be talking early 90s. The Soviet Union had fallen. China still had not rose. Uh, what were the threat aircraft and air defense systems? I would think probably MiG-29 was MiG-29, just MiG-29, former Soviet Union stuff. And sort of still the same thing, oddly enough. You know, MiG-29, SU-27, the Fox Bat, and, you know, MiG-25. So that mix hasn't changed much. You know, you don't face many Mirage series airplanes, but they did sell several to the Middle Eastern countries. So, you know, it's that same theater. And, you know, as you went into Afghanistan, it's sort of a surface-to-air threat most of the time. That was the same thing in Operation Southern Watch. We'd ingress and they would egress to their boundaries of, you know, those two latitudes that they had to be out of. And uh, Desert Storm, I was there for Desert Shield. You know, they this never really engaged. And if they did, they just turned the wrong direction, which is kind of what happened with uh, Mark Fox and uh, is it Mongo? Mangila, Mangila, yeah, and he might have, he was probably in one of your the squatters I think that you were in. Perhaps. We were at Top Gun together. Yeah, so that those MiG twenty ones went the wrong way that day. Cost him. But in the early nineties, it was still I would say what single digit Sams, right? The double digit Sams. Yeah, S twos, twos, threes, fives, sevens, and a lot of triple A. Nothing's changed there. Uh, Jevin wants to know, I think this is the same question. Back in 96, what were the most feared Russian and Chinese threat aircraft uh, in a 1v1 scenario? Probably a fulcrum if you met one. Su-27 was, you know, this thing go high fast and was maneuverable, but you'd never see them. So a lot of these places didn't have those, nor we'd face them. They're just the numbers were never there. Here's a question from Brad Elward. Brad. He wrote the book, yeah. but he uh, apparently didn't get it. He's every- got to know the answers. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully it's not a setup. How did the departure of the F-16s impact Top Gun's ability to replicate fourth-generation threats, and what did the school do to offset that loss? We didn't really talk about the F-16. We did I'd love to almost do a whole episode oh on that. Oh, my gosh. They were there for four months. That must have been the ultimate painful. fighter Painful. Experience. No, it was painful because I said to the guys, well, are they reliable? Oh, uh, Skipper. We fly them three and four times a day. They check the oil between, and nothing ever breaks on it. We go out. We go 800 knots. We go fast. We fight. You pull a lot of Gs. We come back. We recycle the airplane four times. They're awesome. I'd come in. i go, okay, how many F-16s are up? All of them. Really? All of them are up. And we had one two-holer, as we'd call it. So you had a highly reliable airplane. Now you're given these old F-18s, 
And we had gotten rid of the A4s and the F5s at that stage, and we had a Tomcat or two. So we had these old A models. They were hardly ever up in camouflage. (laughs) So it was the only thing that was kind of dissimilar, although now we're fighting an airplane that looks just like you. So it was like, okay, let's make the camo so they kind of jump out. Then I had this brilliant idea of making one black, and that was the staff resisted that in a big way. And you'll, I have a picture that I sent to you of it. And then it, when it came time to go on a cross country, everybody was bothering me for that airplane. I was like, oh, but I, you know, okay, you want to go across country, but you specifically list which airplane double zero is what you want. Oh yeah, yeah. So, but it was a beautiful plane. It showcased the unit nicely. We'd always put on a static display when Airpack would have something, or Fidelity Investments would do something in our. We, oh, we gave the hangar all, all the time. So we'd put these statics in there, and then they'd always invite us to come over. And the guys, you know, you, you got these cheap-ass dudes, the, the single guys, that they don't want to pay for any food. So they would go over, you know, and all wrap up, and they'd go over and have in their, in their old flight suits. And uh, it's like, they loved it. And then whatever company was putting on, I was like, wow, real Top Gun instructors are here. Yeah, they're hungry, and they like to drink. <laughs> <laughs> So I was, I was, yeah, I go on over there. So I was put out and it's like, okay, there's a party in the hangar and you guys go over there, but be nice, represent us well. Top Gun has been flying F-16s for the last, gosh, 20 years now. But, but they're A models. Exactly. Yeah. The F-16N was built specific, I think, for that purpose. It I was. Mean, they took the, the N gun model, out, they, took they went to Key West. Yeah. I think some of them were at VF-43 at Oceana, perhaps. The Key West guys had them. The VF-45, I think it was called. about the Adversary Squadron. Adversary in uh-huh. Key West, and then the in Top Gun. But the majority of them were at Top Gun. And I think they only bought... There is a little story to that. They were Pakistan airplanes. That was the A's and B's. And well, here's what happened. We had an ally that uh, started down a path that they weren't too crazy about. It may have been Pakistan. It was all part of a, hey, we're going to stop this giving you these airplanes because uh, I think it was something to do with nuclear weapons. Yeah or at least dabbling in that area. And it was like, boop, they put an embargo sort of on them and they just sat and they go, where do they go? We'll give them a Top Gun, F-16Ns. And so it was this, I'm not certain it even had a gun in it because they took the guns out. So it was a very lightweight airplane, no pylons, it just goes so fast with the big engine. So it was just this fabulous airplane. And look, cool, cool paint scheme too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you out, Trots, and we okay, can put a dollar ahead. bet on it. But okay, I, I, I'm pretty sure that was the A's and B's because there was 28 of them made. They all went straight from the factory to, to the Davis, boneyard. Them. And yep. then they and sent them. 14 to the Air Force, which they ended up shooting a lot of them down, 14 to the Navy. And I thought the end, if I remember from that article from Nickel, was specifically built for the Navy. It may said, have been. Hey, we want to show you what we can do. But I think it might have been so. an FMS thing to, for military sales that went sideways, and it was like, okay, yeah. let's give them the yeah. Navy. It was a, they got a hell of a deal on them, too. Yeah. They All right. didn't pay much per unit. So I don't know if we answered Brad's question. So you just made do with what you had once the F-16s went away? Yeah, you know, we tried to make the camo schemes look a certain way, and so it was just, it was messy. But nothing could match the F-16N. I mean, certainly not a Hornet. Here's one by Sven Weber. I don't know about this one. I almost left it out, but we'll have a, we'll have a go at it. He read that in the 80s, the first F-A-18 pilots were called fighter attack guys. Uh, the reader, or listener in this case, or viewer, uh, may make up that acronym for him or herself. Um, well, what's the acronym? Fighter attack guys. What would that be? I can't spell. So. <laughs> you can't um, spell. But t- I have a show to think fighter about. Fighter attack guys. Okay. Uh, but in time, the strike fighter became the mainstream. Was that all in good fun, or was there resistance to changing the curriculum <laughs> and the end of the fighter pilot culture? And I think even when I got to the fleet in 96, 
trots. There was still a pretty, I mean, we were friends with VF 101. Uh, they were great on the, on the air wing. But there was a different ready room. What vibe. year was that? It was before 07 because they all went away in 07. Oh, yeah. No, I got yeah. there in 96. Okay, so 96. They were around a while. Tomcats. Yeah, there was, you know what? I think, though, by that time, it was like, okay, you know, we're all here together. And so there was a period in the early 80s where we thought the airplane, the, the program was going to get canceled. Oh, it has no legs. It can't do this. It can't F-18. do that. F-18. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the A model was, uh, if you read Aviation Week a lot, was it on the chopping block or not? You know, it was an airplane that was competing against the F-16, but wasn't done in time. So that's when the F-16 became so prolific with all these, you know, these foreign nations. But it had all sorts of problems at the beginning with that first F-100 engine. People called it the lawn dart. Then when we come out, it's, oh, okay, you're not as good as the F-14. And it was a bit of a brotherly rivalry. What else do you have to do on the boat other than give each other a hard time and go to Folks of Follies and compete, you know, in, in, your, in your hook competition? But we always used to hear this, big F, little A, you know, well, which one are you doing? You know, are you a strike airplane or are you, are you not? Are big you, F meaning a yeah. lot of fighter. Like that's our A lot thing, of fighter, right? yeah. Are, are a little you, A, a little yeah. attack. Are you a dessert topping or are you a floor wax? Which is it? You know, you remember that one? <laughs> From Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, today we're a fighter. Oh, tomorrow we're that. And I think after a while it was like, you know, they're pretty good bombers because it, as you know, I mean, it was a good system to bomb. And then as we started getting precision weapons, it's like, okay, just drop it in that basket, you know, with the JDAMs. And that was, we did a first, one of the first deployments with JDAMs and some Mavericks and that yeah. sort of thing. But yeah, it was a, a, just a, a change that was incremental. At first it was this, a little more of a frat rub kind of deal. And then later on it was like, okay, we're all in the same frat, yeah. you know, so. And- all the Tomcat squadrons ended up turning into Super Hornet squadrons yep, anyway. Exactly. So. Yeah. So you know some of the classics, VF eighty four, you know Jolly Rogers, they got still the two seats. Uh, they became what one hundred two or one hundred three or something like that. But they well, kept the, the logo, skull and bones. Yeah. The yeah. Skull and yeah, bones. Eighty four went, went away when it became some another somebody, squadron. Somebody else said, "This is too cool to let die. Yeah. We're going to adapt it over right. here." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think Dale Snodgrass had a little bit of something oh, with that, that one too. Oh, so rest in peace. Yeah. Oh, Trots, I feel like we could do this all day. We could. That's a problem, but I've got to, yeah. And I've got to get back to work at some point. <laughs> but it's it's really been fun. You know, I I like to stop and, you know, look backwards. Some of the people, and you had a great saying, and, you know, it's, you know, people always ask, do you miss it? And I said, you know, I don't miss long briefs and being on the ship and wearing 45 pounds of junk to go fly an airplane, but I miss the people. And I try to stay connected. You know, I've almost made it a point of each month going, okay, I'm going to reconnect with somebody else. Snort and I were going to go on this backcountry safari together. We were all signed up and Cynthia, and it was like, shit, this whole thing happened. So I <laughs> Snort always looked for a chance to fly. And so I had my change of command at Top Gun. He was there. I go, this is really cool. The Commodore from the East Coast comes all the way to my change of command, and he took me to the boat. He was my LSO to go to the boat when he was lieutenant. And he was like, yeah, trots. You know, <laughs> you're always looking for a chance to fly, though. So he was there for a little while. We had a beer together. But, uh, you know, it's time to reflect on all the sacrifice, all the goodness of what naval aviation has done for this nation, way beyond 100 years now. And, you know, some of the ultimate sacrifices of I, I can reflect on, you know, the call signs and Scooter and Mangler and, jeez, uh, just all these guys. Lex Lafon, an incredible T.C. Bennett. And some of these happened. These are both captains that happened for their love of flying. They kept flying after they retired as 06s. And so it makes you pause, you know, for the grace of God. I keep flying. 
and I keep flying airplanes that I can pull little G's with, which is really wonderful. But uh, this naval aviation is, it's a tough job, but boy, is it a rewarding one. And, you know, has it served this nation well for a hundred and some years since. So uh, yeah. it's incredible. I, I thank you for your service. You've done a great job moderating. And I'm going to tell you why I know that. Because I read some of these reviews. There is a group of people that are in the world's largest iron ore mine underground, and they always listen to your podcast. And I go, wow, these people have nothing to do with aviation, but they're down there and their boss says, hey, here's something great to listen to on their break or whatever it is. So this little episode is dedicated to all of the guys before us that have flown off the boat, the people that are currently serving, and a bunch of people down in some mine that are enjoying what you do because you do a damn fine job. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. As I told you on the drive over here, I've always tried to make the Fighter Pilot Podcast not the Jello show. It's not about me. It's about the subject. It's about my guest. It's about the topic. And you're right. I mean, you could get a little, frankly, misty-eyed or, or nostalgic thinking about as much as I hated being on deployment. I loved being on deployment because there's you're never going to have that experience again. I don't in the airlines. I don't even on this podcast. Although I get close. I mean, we just you know chatted for how long it's been, and and I feel like it's in a, a ready room somewhere or in an O club. But uh, I think that's part of the reason I do it is just to try to stay connected to this thing that was so special. It's it's a brotherhood, you know, and now women are part of it. Sure. But it's a you know naval aviation team yeah. that's it's so unique, and the lifestyle is tough. It's tough because the living on the boat hasn't changed a whole lot. Yeah, it hasn't, well, it hasn't become the Hilton, I don't think, quite no, yet. But they have the internet, I, I guess. Oh, they have internet. I that's think. right. And they've got, they've got some so, yeah, downlink right. something. Well, so, again, another great ending, but I'm not done. Two more questions. What's the future hold? You're still flying as long as they'll let you have a class <laughs> two or three or one? Fog a mirror and <laughs> have a pulse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I fly, uh, in fact, in my current job with our company, I've flown nine different air types of aircraft. We have a couple Gulf Streams. I had a chance to fly the big one the other day, and it had a HUD. So I immediately threw the HUD down. I go, watch how you do this. <laughs> you know, so it's like this. You'll become a HUD cripple if you look through this enough. So I've, I've flown the Gulf Streams. I fly a thing called a PC-9, which is very similar to the T-6 Texan II. You sent me a picture. It looks just like it. It's just like it. Yeah. The Swiss made it. I fly another Swiss airplane, the PC-12 NGX. So... I'm flying uh, turboprops. I fly a Husky. We went on a backcountry safari thing. Did some stuff that I never imagined I would have done down, you know, in a riverbed, landing on the riverbed in the, you know, on a bank and then get out and go fishing and stuff. And it's like, mm. there's a hot spring here. Okay, we'll go there. Yeah. And of course, it's a guy, it's a Doc Sugden. Rich Sugden's the guy that heads it all up. Harrison Ford used to come along pretty often, but, uh, you know, it's a great group of people and we all go together. So I go do that. So I kind of have this second lease on life by virtue of this wonderful employer that I've got. And uh, we have a lot of fun flying between Alpine, Wyoming and Miami and all the world. And, you know, right now it's a, we're out in Vegas for a little bit. So life's good. Yeah, I'm, like I'm well beyond uh, being able to fly with a guy like you at Delta because they would have said, no, you're two and a half years ago. You had to retire. Uh, okay. So it's, uh, it's yeah. great. I get a chance to fly Chase D. Conger around a little bit yeah. and, uh, yeah, life's, life's great. I go between uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, right near there, and Miami, and I live in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And my wife, who I adore and love immensely, supports my craziness of flying. And, but I try my to bring her along. My gears were just turning. I was about to mention her for oh, you. Oh, she's amazing. She but, uh, she's amazing. She's, and she's flown with me in just about all of our airplanes. 
All right. Well, last question. Go ahead. Tom Trotter, Trots. Doesn't sound that imaginative. Maybe there's... <laughs> okay. Here's about how imaginative it is. Aiello sounds like jello. Okay, you go, wow, that's boring. Okay. I'm spineless, Trotter, Trotter's. Nothing to it. So I did. my dog bit me right before my missile shoot, because you had to shoot a missile at VF-101. So my dog bit that crap out of my finger. So my trigger finger. And so I went out, and it was my turn. I roll in behind this drone, and I fire off my missile. <laughs> Nothing comes off because my finger was cut so badly I didn't pull the trigger hard enough. So I thought the trigger would have stuck, but it didn't. So it's like, that would have been a cool That's call too sign. Cool, yeah. Now, what you find is that when a guy becomes an 06, then he becomes, you know, I'll, I won't, Chip Miller was always bullet, but Chip, you know, has a cool call sign. So I said, well, Certainly, you know, when I become the keg, you know, you can become bullet or, uh, you know, you might be eagle or something cool. But that never stuck. It was just kind of always your keg, which is, which is a great call sign. But I had this. I had it. This is the last one little story I've got to tell. Because only four people call me by this call sign. But it keeps coming up. After all these years, it comes up every so often. So I've got a brief with this Marine Corps captain. I am the same rank as this guy. I probably have more flight hours than him in the F-18 when I transition out of Tomcats. I've already been an instructor at the same level as him. We're doing a night round robin. So he walks in and he goes, okay, we're doing this round robin and uh, let's see if you're prepared. Where's your jet card? Now that's what you do in the training command. I said, I do a jet card. And he goes, what do you mean you didn't do a jet card? I said, well, I didn't do a jet card. You know, it's pretty simple. I've got all the coordinates all written down here. This is where we're going. Well, how do you know you got enough fuel? I said, why would they send us out for this thing if we didn't have enough fuel? We do this every night, this little round robin thing. I can't believe it. You don't have a jet card. And so he was just, he got madder and madder. It was like, look, dude, we're the same rank, you know, come on. Nobody does a jet card by the time they've been in the Navy for six years. And so he's, he's fuming. He goes, you're going to do a jet card. By God, we're not going. And I was like, I'll give you a down. And I go, oh, my God, where are the jet cards? So I go get a jet card. So <laughs> you probably remember who Bill Gortney was. <laughs> Shortney's one of these guys that loves Shortney, Roger Welch, Dog. All these guys are in the ready room because we're all students going through. And they, the guy walks in there. And he goes, who's this guy that didn't have a jet card? Who's that guy on the? And they said, oh, that's Trotter's his name. Topper. And he goes. Who's that topper guy? And then, so he took my last name and he changed it around from Trotter to Topper. Topper guy, this Topper guy. And he just, all he did was fume and get more spun up in the ready room. And I'm in there putting a bullshit jet card together. I said, here, hope that makes you happy. And <laughs> so he was like, I'm not going to talk to you. We get in the plane and he's not saying a word. And it's like, so I started up. We, you know, of course, I got it. 1500 hours. I didn't give a shit if he didn't talk to me. That was fine. And so we're in this two seated F 18. We do the route. By the time I get to the extreme part of the route, my hydraulics go out on one side. And he just sits back, like, I don't like you. And you didn't do a jet car. And I'm not going to help you. And so it's like, uh-huh. you're the IP. Hide 1A and 1B or whatever it was. We're going. And so I'm going, I got to go back and take an arrested landing. I have to blow the gear. I've got to get my book out and I got to call the STO and I'm doing all this stuff. And he just sat back there. I mean to tell you, when we trapped and this thing had hydraulic fluid going all over the place, it took every bit of restraint to not punch him out 
as we got out of the airplane on the runway, I was like, you were worthless helping me through an emergency. Well, when you didn't have a jet card, you think I... <laughs> <laughs> so we come up in the ready room, and it was like the two of us are like, I was ready to strangle him. He's ready to do the same to me. And he says, this topper guy. And so forever after that point, between those four guys, topper guy, topper guy. Yeah. And Doug Thompson says it the funniest, topper guy. And Roger Welch, the same thing. So I'm, I'm going across country five or six years later. You know, I'm over the panhandle of Texas. It's like midnight and I'm going somewhere. And I check onto some frequency, you know, this is fist zero three, checking on flight level 410. Topper guy. <laughs> it's one of those four that's going the other way in an F-18. <laughs> so there's Topper guy. You know? And then that movie comes out with Topper Harley. If that's you remember right. Charlie yeah. Sheen with uh, Hot Shots. Hot Shots. Yeah. yeah. Part due. Part due. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's a call sign story. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Topper guy. I'll probably start hearing about it again now that I've laid it out there. Yeah, it's like a Fight Club type call. Yeah, yeah, it was in in the vault though for a while. You know, (laughs) awesome. Oh man, well, Trotz, this was everything I expected it to be. Uh, We didn't bash on Bones quite enough. No, no, no. but but we can we can do that. He's an episode in himself. He was, he was. Well, he was kind enough to uh, let us use. He gave you the digs. The studio, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he charges a little something, but that's right. So it was fun. This was great. Uh, You talked earlier about a list of people you call once in a while. I hope you'll add me to that list. Oh yeah, uh, you're well. You're on my speed dial. Yeah. Well, you know, no, you're not a favorite yet. You'll bubble up there, I'm sure, as we start talking. But uh, (laughs) it was fun. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.